You're listening to the Mosaic Podcast, brought to you by Jewish Federation of Palm Beach County. Each episode of this podcast will offer you excerpts from the Mosaic TV news magazine, which airs Sunday from January to April in the Palm Beaches. Mosaic explores the most pressing issues facing the Jewish community here at home and around the world. And now, here's your host, Susan Shulman Pertnoy. Today is our season's finale, and we're here in a unique conversation with Betsy Shear, who is a member of the Jewish Federation's Board of Directors, and Michael Hoffman, the CEO and President of the Jewish Federation. Welcome to Mosaic. Thank you, Thank Susan. You. I had the pleasure of going on a mission to the Ukraine and Poland border with Betsy and Michael. And Michael, I want to ask you, why did we go on this mission? So first, um, I want to thank Susan, you and Betsy for really, you know, at a moment's notice, taking my phone call saying we have an opportunity to go with Jewish Federations of North America, which is the umbrella organization for all Jewish federations. We were invited to participate in a very high level select mission. We were actually the first um, leadership delegation from North America to go to the Polish-Ukrainian border. We went with about seven other Jewish Federation top leaders from across the country. And we went and we were asked to go because we, need to, um, we needed to go and we needed to, to bear witness. We needed to see you know, in, our, in our own eyes and, and we, needed to, we needed to see with our own eyes what was actually happening on the border with the thousands and thousands of refugees streaming through the border. And we needed to meet with our partners at the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee and the Jewish Agency for Israel, two organizations that we have funded extensively to help provide support for rescue and relief for all the refugees who are pouring through the border in search of a life that is free of danger and peril. We arrived in the afternoon. One of the guides said to us, we have an opportunity for those of you who are not tired to go across the street and see what's going on in the train station in Warsaw because it was a place where the uh, refugees were ha had a respite before they figured out where they were going to go. So all of us said, oh, we're not going to miss this opportunity. So we went right across the street and um, it was quite an introduction of what we were going to see for the rest of the trip. I mean, we, we are all, we, we had just landed, we had gone through the airport, we had gone through customs, and I don't know if you remember Susan, because we walked through, we just saw a sign saying, if you are a refugee, if you're coming from Ukraine, or other, you know, another you know, situation, there are phone numbers everywhere. And there was, there was a kiosk, if you're a refugee, to go to figure out where to find help, where you can find shelter. Absolutely, Betsy, why don't you tell us about your experience when you were in the train station, what did you see? It was our first glimpse of the aftermath of this horrible situation in Ukraine. And what we saw was one of several way stations that we visited over the course of our few days where refugees come to gather their thoughts and figure out where they're going next. And as a result, we saw lots of mothers Remember, this was almost all women and children because the men, most of them, um, stayed back to fight. I shouldn't say only men because some of the women did bring their children to the border, turn around and go back to join their husbands to fight. But at this point, it was mostly women and children and elderly. And the older people and the moms were just glassy-eyed sitting on some of the benches in the train. And the kids were being kids. They were looking for things to do. 
And I could only imagine, because of my own grandchildren, what it might have been like to be in that situation. Uh, it was great to see the parents who needed resting getting a little bit of rest. Interestingly, just before I left, I got a phone call from a friend in LA who said to me, Betsy, I hear you're going on this trip and I know someone who has a relative in Ukraine who would like to get to Spain. Do you think you can help? And I said, I have no idea how I can do this, but I'll see what I can do. So I went up to one of these young Spanish volunteers and I said to her in my very halting Spanish, here's the situation. Do you know of anybody helping refugees get to Spain? And she said, interestingly, I have someone who's getting two buses from Krakow next Tuesday. I wonder if there's space on those buses for your friend's friends. So I said, well, give me the information. And she showed me a picture from her phone of the contact information, which I immediately texted to my friend in LA. And sure enough, a few days later, those people got on that bus from Krakow to Spain. That's, that's an amazing, amazing. story. Um, really an amazing coincidence. Yeah. Um, I had uh, an opportunity to have a conversation with a young lady who was there with her grandmother, her mother, her, her cousins, and her fiance's family. And we're going to show a clip about that conversation. My name is Rita. Rita. I'm from Ukraine, from Kiev. This is my family, a part of it. Your mom and your... No, no, my granny, my mom, my mom is somewhere here. My mom, my auntie, my cousins, one and two, second is wow. here. And uh, also my fiance's family. Mm. Yes, his uh, little sisters. We were in a city called Borodyanka. Maybe you've heard about it. It's a disaster now. So we were there and uh, we managed to get out of there by ourselves. We got to Kiev. And from there, the Red Cross, they helped us and uh, they took us here. And what are you going to do? <coughs> now you're in the train station. Yes. And, and where are, are you going to go? Uh, we are going to Wroclaw. Uh, there, our relatives uh, from, from Israel, they helped us and they rent us a house. So we are going to stay, to stay there. Coming up, the people that are making a difference for those who are suffering. Mosaic is brought to you through the dedication of generous corporate sponsors who fuel the work of Jewish Federation of Palm Beach County. We thank American Commercial Realty, Appleby Utifriend Wealth Management, Raymond Motorcars, Bruce Gendelman Insurance Services, Commodore, Singer, Baseman, and Braun Attorneys, First Republic Bank, Rogers Design Group, and Shapiro Pertnoy Companies. We're back talking about our mission to the Ukraine border with Poland, and we're going to talk about the humanitarian aid that our partner organizations are doing. But first, I want to tell you that we, when we were there, the first tent that you saw in this makeshift uh, tent city, uh, humanitarian tent city, was the tent housing the Israeli flag. And Michael, I want you to talk about that because you had a unique experience. 
So when you're right up to the border to the fence of the Polish-Ukrainian fence, there's just a constant stream of women and children. And then the, when you walk through this, this border, there's a whole, there's a, um, a makeshift tent city that has been sort of created with all these different relief organizations. And what was so remarkable is everybody working together. But the first tent you see when you walk through that border is the tent representing the state of Israel. And they're there to help serve um, Jews and non-Jewish refugees because they are tired, they, some of them are, are injured, they're sick, they're fatigued. And when you walk into the tent, I have the opportunity to speak with two of the volunteers. And they actually both, the volunteers are actually from the, the U.S. One actually um, was a medic fellow at University of Maryland Shock Trauma. Another was um, a, a resident in a hospital in, in, in Chicago. Both are from, their families are from Poland. I asked, why are you volunteering? And this one young woman said um, that, that they are so uniquely aware, acutely aware of, Polix, of Poland's tragic history. They felt a sense of obligation to come to Poland to volunteer to help their brethren from the uh, Ukraine. Why did you decide to volunteer? So I'm Polish and my country's been through this already and I'll do anything to um, I'll do anything to help the Ukrainians. They're our long-standing neighbors. Sorry, no one's really asked me. It's just so awkward. I don't mean to cry, but yeah, we're just like here because we're able to, and um, yeah, we just want to protect the Ukrainians as much as we can. And that's really what I felt really through all the volunteers that we interacted with through the Jewish Agency, the Joint Distribution Committee, and, and any place else that we were at, the train station, this tent city, any of the, um, the, any of the hotels where there were volunteers, there was such a level of, of compassion and kindness, and everybody was just opening up their hearts and their homes and, and everything they can do to help these individuals who have just gone through so much trauma and still have to deal with so much more. I was really struck by the fact that you had people from every country, every religion, side mm -hmm. by side by side, doing their part, no matter what it was. And some were handing out pizza, and some were giving out water, and over here were diapers, and whatever it was. And they were proudly displaying the names of their organizations, or their countries, or their religions. And everybody was just there to play a role. And yeah. they were there because they wanted to be. And there was a sense of quiet dignity, not just among the, the workers, but especially among the refugees who understood that when they crossed that border, they were going to be welcomed by people whom they had never met, um, but who were there just to, to be kind. Them. Yes. I mean, yes. I, there's two, two things that really struck me. One is that when you cross the border, there was an eerie calmness. Yeah. You know, like you didn't hear a lot of screaming. The, the kids were actually pretty mellow. The, the, the mothers who, who had walked through, they had this look of just just de sheer uh, uh, determination. And it was, it was very well organized. Um, and they kind of walked through this tent city again with all of these different ethnic groups and all these different religions. Um, and it just kind of you know, made me think that in this period in, in our world where there's so much conflict, there, are so, there is so much humanity taking place that it, it, it was a little slice in, in our world of everyone working together to help somebody else. And it was really, it was quite emotional. Yeah, as tragic as the situation is, in some ways it was very affirming because you saw the best of people as well as the worst. And I guess that's what war is all about. 
but to really see the uh, outpouring of generosity and kindness. And nobody expected to be treated like a hero. They were there because they felt like they wanted to help. Absolutely. And, and what else was striking was the fact that you see these people who are carrying cell phones and earbuds, and they're like you and I. They are teachers, doctors, lawyers, and they had to leave in, in a drop of a notice, and some were carrying garbage bags. And I, I, I try, I'm trying to process it, and I get to process it and come home to this. They have to process it and figure out what's next. It's really there's amazing. One, there's one picture that I took, and it was of this young woman, and I have a 19-year-old daughter. She looked she could have been my 19-year-old daughter. Again, she, she was wearing her Uggs. She had her fanny pack. She had her iPhone. And, um, and now here she is. She walked through the border in this tent city. But the look on her face was relief she made it this far through the danger of, of going from wherever she was in Ukraine, Odessa, Kiev. And now she was at the border. But their journey is only just beginning. And the level of uncertainty that they have to face, because this is, this is a long road ahead, to determine what's going to come next for all of the six million refugees that are now flooded throughout Europe and will be scattered around the world. And most of them have no idea where they're going. Right. And even in light of the fact that politically things change and maybe there's a ceasefire, this need for humanitarian aid is going to go on way be beyond uh, the next few months. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing how much need is... There, is two levels of need. One is, at least certainly within the Jewish community, is um, the amount of, of support that we are providing to Jewish institutions and in all throughout Eastern and Central Europe, because they are on the front lines. If you go to the JCC in Krakow, in, in Budapest, um, in Bucharest, those JCCs, those Jewish community centers, they're the ones, they have daycare, they're providing shelter, they're providing food, they're the ones taking care of these um, uh, refugees. We also asked the question of the chief rabbi of Poland, are you only serving Jews? And the chief rabbi of Poland had a just wonderful response back. He said, everybody was made in the image of God. Anyone who's walking into any of our Jewish institutions, we're going to support them. And that's made me very proud. Now we have two special guests joining us via Zoom. Ariel Zwang is the CEO of the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, known as JDC, and Dan Elbaum, who is the head of North American Operations for the Jewish Agency for Israel, also known as Jaffe. Ariel, I'd like to start with you. We've seen incredible images of videos of people fleeing Ukraine, and incredibly, JDC is on the ground providing aid. How were how you able to do this? JDC has worked in Ukraine for 30 years and with the Jewish communities of Europe for decades, very deeply since the war, have accompanied the communities of Europe as they've rebuilt themselves from the ashes of the Holocaust and in the case of the former Soviet Union from two generations of communism that repressed Jewish life throughout the region. And so we have strong relationships decades long that are now all coming into play as we respond to this crisis. One thing that we're very focused on and have been since before this terrible war started is we serve about, four, of, of the 200,000 Jews in Ukraine before the war began, JDC served 40,000 of them with 
your partnership and your support. The Federation has made this work possible for decades. And one important consideration of ours is to continue that work. We have still thousands of home care workers still providing services to tens of thousands of elderly and destitute Jews, even now, even with this war. And so how were you able to scale up your relief efforts with, with everything going on? What JDC has done is together with the communities of Europe with which we have decades and in generations of relationships have helped them to open call centers, to open hubs. I saw this in Kishinev, Moldova. They have a the head of the community that is a, you know, he's a businessman. Uh, he owns an indoor tennis court. And that indoor tennis court is now a hub that receives buses of refugees from the border. And depending on whether they want to go to Israel, to Germany, or elsewhere in Europe, to Bucharest, the buses then leave there based on what the people want. So it's tremendous baseline of partnership with the communities and infrastructure on the ground that has allowed us, we've evacuated close to 13,000 Jews at this point. How is JDC planning to deal with the needs in a month from now and a year from now, because they're not gonna go away anytime soon. What we're doing in this next phase is first of all, um, setting ourselves up for a longer process that will include ultimately and God willing, rebuilding of communities in Ukraine, helping those who we've helped to escape with their lives to rejoin their loved ones, Again, God willing, their houses are still, you know, their homes are still habitable. Uh, and if not, that's a different matter that, that requires support and helping those communities to be strong again and rebuild again, if that's what people want to return to their homes. It will also mean significant refugee absorption in Europe, and that's already beginning. And one of the things that we're doing now is mapping what's going to be available publicly to all refugees from Ukraine, not just Jewish refugees uh, in the European Union, in the various countries, so that we make the best use of the resources that you're providing to us um, to build upon resources that are publicly available to figure out how long can we house people? Many, many months, couple of years, and then what services will they need? Right. Job retraining, education for their kids, Jewish education. So all of those are things that we're working on. Ariel, thank you so much for the work that you do and for joining us today. Thank you for all that you make possible and for helping so many people know so much about what's going on. Thank you. Now we'll turn to the Jewish Agency for Israel and we'll speak with the head of North American operations, Dan Elbaum. Dan, welcome to Mosaic. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Your organization supports the vulnerable, both in Israel and overseas, and especially in Ukraine. What was it doing there before the war? So we have literally been there for decades. I would say the primary work of our staffers, both Ukrainian and Israeli, is working on Aliyah, the right of any Jew, no matter where he or she lives, to move to the state of Israel if they choose uh, but we also do very significant work on Jewish identity through summer camps and other ways of really teaching this population about their Jewish identity and their historic link to Israel 
so much of this was lost during the Soviet era. How did your long history in Ukraine help you in preparing for the war? You know, I can't emphasize this point enough, but we keep saying it over and over again. Our ability to be there today was because of our presence yesterday, which is only possible because of your support and generous federations across the United States. We have relationships on the ground um, for years, decades, as I said, which allowed us to respond to the crisis when it occurred. Around 30 days before the crisis, before the invasion of Ukraine, we got together with our top strategic minds. Many of them, pretty much all of them, had been in the Israeli military and started to go through various scenarios of how we could respond and how we could get people out as quickly as possible should a conflict arise. That's really the key to the success here, is the ability to be there and have those relationships and to plan ahead and try to see those scenarios before they unfold. You also have um, a lot of emissaries throughout Ukraine. They called them shlahim in Hebrew. And I know that they were teaching the Ukrainians about life in Israel. How did they pivot during the war? So my Israeli colleagues will roll their eyes, but these people are my heroes um, for a few different reasons. First of all, we, we took some out shortly before the conflict. And then when the conflict became, began, when the war really began, we sent them back in. So as 5 million Ukrainians left the country, many of these shlichim went back into Ukraine in order to help with Aliyah. The work they do on Jewish identity is fundamental. It's teaching people the basics about Judaism. It's starting to talk about Israel. It's different things like that. Uh, that role shifted dramatically during the war. It went from one of education to one of rescue and really taking people up to the border and doing all you can. We had 300 buses that drove people to the border where the, then the Ukrainian refugees after they crossed were then met by our staffers on the other side of the border. So really a incredible service in an incredibly difficult time. That's what our Shlithium have been doing. That's really amazing that they that they were able to do that and, and really be of such assistance. Uh, how are you working with synagogues there and other organizations to assist you? So very closely. Unfortunately, many of the synagogues and members and leaders are now among the refugees, as are many of our 90 Ukrainian employees who we had before the war. But many have also stayed. These are community leaders. So we work with them on many levels. Uh, first and most importantly is in terms of rescue, of identifying, of connecting us and other organizations with these refugees, making sure that we can get them on buses, get them on vans, get them on trains, do whatever we can to get them to the border. The second and very important for us is the Aliyah process, because in order to make Aliyah, one has to be have at least a Jewish grandparent. Uh, currently, the Ukrainian Jewish population is around 45,000, but an additional 200,000 are eligible for Aliyah, meaning that they have one Jewish grandparent. Um, in a historical, it's not an irony, it's a historical fact that won't be lost on any of us. The standard for Aliyah, the standard to allow someone to move to Israel, is the same standard that the Nazis used for extermination, is, is one Jewish grandparent. So these members of the Jewish community, these leaders are very helpful for us in terms of verifying records if somebody does have that eligibility to come make Aliyah. The war is also triggering a wave of Russian immigration. Can you speak about that? I can, but a little carefully, uh, just out of security concerns. I will say that we have gotten thousands of calls from Russian Jews asking about making Aliyah. Uh, I won't 
get into the reasons for making that decision. But really, it looks certainly very possible that the number of Russian Olim could match the number of Ukrainian Olim. And just to take a step back and give a little perspective, in the year 2021, Israel had 29,000 Olim across the world. 2,500 were from Ukraine, around 4,000 were from the United States. The numbers go on, but 29,000 total. At this point, we already have over 10,000 from Ukraine. We anticipate between 15 and 20,000. If we reach a similar number from Russia or even half that number, we will match the total number of Olim that Israel absorbed in 2021 just from two countries. That's to say nothing of the 3,000 Ethiopian Olim who we anticipate coming under family reunification this year. The standard number one receives from France, and there's some rumors French numbers might be higher based on recent elections, South America, United States. Uh, this will be the largest wave of Olim since the fall of the Soviet Union. That is really some statistic. Uh, on that note, I really thank you for joining us and appreciate all the work that you do. Thank you. And let me just say, I, I, I do love the show, but even more than the show, I do love all the support we get from your federation. We couldn't do this work without it. And please know how much it's appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mosaic Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to Mosaic on your favorite streaming platform and to leave us a review. Want more? Visit jewishpb.org mosaic where you can access full episodes of the show. To stay connected with the Jewish community of the Palm Beaches, visit jewishpb.org or follow Jewish Federation at facebook.com slash jewishpalmbeach.